I want to start out uh, kind of a, a new set of talks, um, at least for as long as I can. Uh, my wife turned 39 weeks pregnant this week, so we're kind of in, in the danger zone right now. So that head could pop any moment. And so I told him, I was like, I told his be- uh, Bailey's belly last night, I said, Benjamin, either come this week or wait a couple weeks because I have some stuff I'd like to get into on Sundays. So either come now or wait at least a couple weeks so I can dive into some stuff. Um, this is the first thing I've taken over where you take it over, then you take a couple weeks off. And so, um, but yeah, you'll know soon enough if you don't see me here that uh, he has arrived. But um, as long as I can talk, um, and even when I get back, I want us to spend some time uh, looking at what it means to be king priest. King priest, which is our role um, and our title given to us as believers as we move um, into the kingdom realm. Um, according to the writer of Hebrews, our understanding of what it means to be king priest is attached to just about everything. Um, last week, I talked about uh, our updated mission, which is to believe the good news, become the good news, and share the good news. And the breakdown of that is that the good news is simply that the kingdom of God is here. The euangelion, the gospel, is that the kingdom of God is here, right? And so our understanding of that ties into our understanding that when we believe the good news and we become the good news, we enter into this reality of a different kingdom than the one we're currently set in, right? This is where predominantly we get caught up in and there's just different words for it, but things like Christian nationalism, different things like that, where we can oftentimes tie our patriotism, no matter where we're from or where we are, into our faith. But as St. Augustine would write, and I'm not a massive St. Augustine fan, but he has some good stuff. I'm not putting my stamp on the guy. But as St. Augustine would write in his confessions um, uh, in South Africa, that we are not Romans, we are not South Africans, we are actually a people that are set apart a holy nation set apart for our savior. And so I want us to look into what it means to be kings and priests. I realize that it is Super Bowl Sunday and I just told them at 6.30, we'll just pop them on behind me and half y'all can listen, half you can watch. There's, you know, there's waters and drinks in the back and you can grab an appetizer, just hop back in here and we'll just keep on, I'll keep on preaching. I'll preach all night if we need to. I feel like it's gonna be like as long as I'm preaching, the 49ers are winning. Remember how Moses had to hold his hands up? So as long as I'm preaching, if the 49ers are winning, I'm going to keep going until the last second. So we're going to have, Braden already ran across the room, so we're already having a real Pentecostal night. And so I know that's the most exercise I've seen Braden do in about 10 years. And it's all about the presence. Amen. 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 It's not true. It's not true at all. Very, very active guy. Very active guy. We've gotten off track, um, but let's let's uh, let's lean into what it means and and the idea of of being king priest. Um, I think predominantly for myself, growing up, I would say for most of us, we live our life in segregations. We live our life in pieces. Uh, our church is one piece. Our family, our intimate relationships is another piece. Um, Our vocation is another piece. And then our personal goals and dreams often become something separate. All these things, you know, I sometimes envision it like you did like the the, uh, table of food. What's it called? Yeah, the pyramid of, of healthy food in school. Is that what it was called? Whatever it is. 
food pyramid. I, I picture oftentimes, we oftentimes see our lives in these segregated sections broken down into, I think of this, and I think of this, I think of this, but predominantly they remain separate. They remain separate from each other. It, it would be foolish to say that they don't in any way intersect because sometimes they do, especially spiritually. We can oftentimes somewhat tie them together, but for the most part, it's seen separate. Your family and coming to church aren't seen in the same way, right? Your, your vocation and gathering here is not seen often in the same light. We see them differently. Oftentimes, for some of us, our personalities are different in work and in, in, in church. Oftentimes, our personalities, sometimes I think the greatest fear for, for fathers and mothers would be to ask their kids how they actually are at home, <laughs> Right? Wouldn't that be the worst thing? Go, how, bring, I'm going to bring all the kids up tonight and go, how is your parents actually when no one's around? Let's just see how comfortable everyone remains in the room. I'm starting with Jeremiah and Josiah, so I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but it's, it's a reality that for most of us, our lives stay in somewhat um, segregated sections. But in the reality, the kingdom realm uh, and the idea of a kingdom is really an all-encompassing word. Kingdom, from a scriptural perspective, is the outer layer in that which holds everything of our current state of living and being in its place and its ways. In the same way, if you were to look at the makeup of the person, our inner person is the spirit, and then you move into our body, and then you move into our mind, and then you move into our surroundings and what is touched by influence of us. And all that connected, all those things are combined in us by our soul. It's our soul that binds all the pieces of us together, right? In the same way, when we think about our lives, our vocations, our, our circles of influence, everything is found within this paradigm of the kingdom, Right, And at the end of the day, uh, especially in Matthew and in John, um, the idea of the kingdom of God is the centerpiece of Jesus's mission. The, the gospel, the good news is centered around this concept of the kingdom. Now, if we were oftentimes right now in our current predominant Western um, Christian mind to boil down uh, the gospel, we would oftentimes say it like this. This is what the gospel currently is, is Jesus telling us, tell me you are bad and evil and have faith and I'll let you into my planet when you die. That's, that's how we've broken down the gospel predominantly, right? When you wanna get saved and when you wanna be a Christian, here's what you do. You tell the Lord you're evil and you're awful and you're this and you're that. And if you just hold on deep enough and long enough, if you'll just wait for that beautiful homecoming, then, then you'll get in. You'll move on to the next level of this thing, right? As we've oftentimes discussed so much that that really is not the gospel. That is not what the gospel message is. And I want us to be able to examine what being a king priest means, but we will have no ability to understand what being a king priest is if we don't understand what kingdom we belong to and what the kingdom actually is, right? We have oftentimes talked about the success of the Roman empire had nothing to do with its army and its forces, 
The Roman Empire's success was often found in their ability to take over a nation and then make them think they were Roman. That's what an apostle is. An apostle is someone that goes into a conquered city and brings the culture, the ways, the nature, the vocabulary of the Roman Empire in that time to that place. And within a generation, nobody felt like slaves. Nobody felt like they were a conquered nation. They just felt Roman. Because being Roman came with perks. We see it in the life of Paul. Right? Peter gets burnt upside down on a cross, but Peter gets, but Paul gets beheaded. Why is that? Because Paul's a Roman citizen, which means he's allowed to die an honorable death. The reason Paul is not tortured the way the other apostles and the other Christians and believers were, were because he carried that, that wasn't a physical card, but because he carried a card that he was a Roman citizen. It was his unique uh, nature as far as moving into all of this. So when we understand the gospel, we must move past this simplistic, and Stephen even kind of touched on it for a second, but this simplistic idea that the gospel boiled down is you're bad, God's good, tell God you're bad, and you'll see that he's good. It sounds great. And it is a a minuscule piece of what the euangelion is, but it is really not the gospel. Um, We're going to look at a lot of scripture tonight. Uh, If you want to go to Matthew 4, we're going to start here. Um, And uh, I'm going to try to, um, I I say that, I'm lying. I'm not going to try to get you out as fast as I can. That would be a lie. If I tell you that, it's just, I'm lying, you're believing a lie. It's just a whole thing. I have to go to confession tomorrow. Find me a priest. It's going to be a whole thing. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 23 through 25, we're going to start here. It says, Jesus ministered from place to place throughout all the province of Galilee. He taught in the synagogues, preaching the wonderful news of the kingdom and healing every kind of sickness and disease among the people. His fame spread throughout all of Syria. Many people who were in pain and suffering with every kind of illness were brought to Jesus for their healing. Epileptics, Paralytics and those tormented by demonic powers were all set free. Everyone who, brought, everyone who was brought to Jesus was healed. This resulted in massive crowds of people following him, including people from Galilee, Jerusalem, and the land of Judah, the region of the 10 cities known as the Decapolis and beyond the Jordan River. Now we read this and we understand that Jesus went from place to place teaching in synagogues teaching in synagogues and the question around this idea because we see this preceding thing and then this thing that follows. Jesus teaches and then there's healing, miracles, signs, and wonders. Everywhere we go throughout all four gospels, we see teaching of the gospel, the kingdom, and then signs and wonders. We see a preceding thing versus a thing that follows, right? And we have oftentimes talked about this. I talked about this, I think, last year. I did a, we did a night talking about supernatural idolatry where oftentimes we become so intoxicated by the supernatural, we forget that our rightful place first is to understand who we are and who we've been designed to be. Your role of beloved identity, your, below, your role of righteous sonship. Okay, and so the question becomes, what is Jesus teaching? If we go back just a couple verses in uh, verse 17, it says, 
In Matthew 4, 17, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to proclaim his message with these words. Keep turning away from your sins and come back to God. For heaven's kingdom realm is now accessible. Most of us grew up, this is the new international or new living translation. We grew up, it sounded a lot more like this for us. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God. For the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the message of Jesus, is to repent and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is near, right? If we were to really bring this concept, because um, the, the Passion Translation is a thought-for-thought translation, and the New Living Translation is actually a word-for-word translation. But if we were to bring really this statement into our current state and our current language, it would sound something more like this. It's time to completely change the way you think because my kingdom is here and you have been invited into it freely. That is a summarized, I think, current version of what Jesus is trying to say. That's the Noah Chant translation coming to, come to bookstores near you. And so we become aware that Jesus' call and his message is actually has nothing to do with a state of being and rather to do with a kingdom coming. And our state of being only matters with our access into this kingdom, okay? And so we begin to ask ourselves, if we're going to see ourselves as king priests, what is a kingdom? Jesus describes it in Luke 17, 20 through 21. He says this, that being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that you can observe or that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. For the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What does this mean? It's an interesting concept because what Jesus is beginning to show us is that the kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is actually a person. That he is saying that in the midst of you, growing inside some of you, is this kingdom of God. And it is I. The kingdom of God is I. Interestingly, um, if you, if in, in the version I shared, it says that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. If you look at that word observed in the Aramaic, it actually is the same word that they would use for observance to the law. So the kingdom of God cannot come in any way that you can observe to the law, but simply the kingdom of God rather is right in front of you. And this sounds um, beautiful and mystical and it sounds really exciting and kind, but at the end of the day, there's still this mysticism attached to, okay, so if the kingdom of God is Jesus, then what does that actually mean? Right, like there's this reality of like, great, that sounds awesome, what does it mean? How do we actually understand this process? And I've used this term before, but I really want us to to, to write this down and, and come to this greater understanding of this. If we were to ask ourselves, what is the kingdom of God? If you could define the kingdom itself, it is this. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. Good, everybody sounds super happy about it. 
The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. So the kingdom of God is simply laid out by this. Wherever what God is wanting to be done is done is where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the range of his effective will. I wrote this, that the kingdom of God is any place that his values, culture, precepts, and most importantly, his love are being poured out. This is his kingdom, right? Dallas Willard would say that this is the understanding of the kingdom. This is why we become king priests because the kingdom of God, as he said, is not spread by signs or wonders. It's actually spread by people. The kingdom of God is spread by people. And so that's why the kingdom of God is any place his effective will is being done. Make sense? Everybody on the same page? Now, this oftentimes on initial hearing feels extremely radical for both the Jew and the Gentile, okay? For the Jew, this is extremely radical because for them, they already had a blueprint of the kingdom. They, in their mind, they were living in it. The kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Jerusalem, the kingdom of, of, of Judah at one point was the blueprint of what this was to be, right? And all throughout um, Jesus's three years of ministry, we keep seeing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two different sects of thought within um, Judaism. They kept battling with Jesus because they could not understand, okay, so when do we defeat the Romans and reign? Jesus is like, well, it doesn't work like that. They're like, great, but when does it happen though? And they're like, no, it doesn't work that way. And he's like, still, when? Right, there's this mind block they can't get past because in their eyes, the blueprint is already there, right? And for us as Gentiles, we oftentimes have a hard time viewing this because we see it from a completely different place because we have often, through bad eschatology, always seen the kingdom of God as someplace else. We have oftentimes relieved our minds of the kingdom of God to a geographical distance, right? A distance in the cosmos, right? I heard somebody recently, it came up on, I think my Instagram's trying to get me to sin. I just think it is. Force me into judging other people. But um, I was just scrolling and I saw a video come up and this guy is trying to explain, and he can't use scripture because it's not in scripture, but he's trying his own ways to find a way to explain that heaven is a planet. I know, I know. Basically the opposite of everything I say all the time. And Instagram just put it right in front of my face. But this is oftentimes the concept lived out right now in the world is that heaven or the kingdom is this otherworldly geographical place. And so even from the beginning unto now, the idea of God's kingdom has oftentimes been a stumbling block in our own understanding and our own ability to understand what this whole thing actually means. Because at the end of the day, I don't think there's anything wrong with the current state in the way in which that we do salvation. But do I, can I honestly sit here and assess that the way we currently do salvation is the best way? Let me ask you this. Someone comes into the room and they sit through Incredible worship. By the way, who, who thought the spirit of Anna and Elsa would be the thing to free us all 
spiritually into the kingdom. That's not, I'm not being honest. So if you're trying to clip this online, that was a joke. But the spirit of on and else, I could just feel it in the room. There was this, this Disney presence in the room. No, but um, if someone came in the room, they experienced worship, they hear a word, and then we begin this process of, okay, if this sounds good to you, raise your hand and you're saved. Woo. Great. What does that mean? Like if I brought you here tonight and was like, hey, I'm just going to run through a quick 40-minute thing about Plexus. Who wants to sign up? Don't worry about anything else, none of the fine print. Just sign your name on the dot. We'll move on. And we have oftentimes tied this idea of salvation to just, just make this quick, just make the decision. But the reality is it is a complex idea to understand moving from one kingdom to another. I've lived with the conviction that if in my own personal life, if someone came to me and said, I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I'm at the place where I'm like, that's awesome. So let's go to coffee like four times and talk about what that means. What this actually, this whole thing is about. And that way you're not just counted as a number on a social media site. Rather, you understand the kingdom that you belong to. Right? We've talked about this often. And so we, it's been a hard concept understanding what this whole idea is because on one hand, one people group sees as they already have the blueprint and on the other hand, the other people group see as this is something otherworldly. And the, the one thing that both can somewhat agree on and understand is this idea of repentance, right? Jesus opens up and says, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. But even then, predominantly, we've lived in this state where, where repentance has been boiled down to this like illgalic, in a sense, constant form of lament, right? I was listening to a um, lecture on Thursday by Dr. Michael Brown, and he was talking um, on Premier UK, and he kept using this statement that the church needs to turn, to re- turn back to repentance, the church needs to turn back to repentance, which I think is fantastic. But oftentimes what that word actually means is the church needs to get in a room and spend a couple hours feeling sorry for how they've acted. Church needs to get in a room, grab a couple whips and start walking around and whipping their back and woe is me and, you know, fill their hair with ash and wear sackcloth for the night, right? And this is what we've always been, been told that repentance is. Now, Jesus' idea in this statement in Matthew of repent for the kingdom of God is near shares in reality not very much with that idea. Repentance in the Greek is metanoia, right? We've talked about this. Repentance in the Greek is metanoia. And metanoia is actually to completely change the way you think. Repentance is not only to realize that the way you've been living is wrong, but it is actually to completely change the way you view yourself, the way you view the world, and the way you view everything and your relationship with it around you. And the greatest form of repentance for most of us is to repent of how we viewed God and how we viewed ourselves. This is the true act of metanoia to leave the process of seeing this being that's just way over there and me, this thing that is abstract from it and realize 
that repentance is the ability to say that I understand that I have been my own king and my own person deciding for myself what is good and evil. And instead of doing that, I'm actually going to change lordship and change the way I view everything around me to your values and your precepts and your ideas. This is repentance. So Jesus comes with this radical statement that it's time to completely change the way you view the world. He follows this up in the beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he begins with all these statements that are radical. Like you say, you're supposed to hate your enemies and love your neighbors. I say, love your enemies. Jesus says, if, if your enemy makes you walk one mile, you go two, right? He comes up with these, these statements and his purpose is showing you the radical alteration you're going to have to do in your brain to understand the values and concepts of the kingdom realm. There's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting um, exegesis and hermeneutical piece by a guy named Richard Alcorn. And he talks about the way that Jesus spoke about the Sermon on the Mount. And he says that Jesus, when doing the Sermon on the Mount, um, which was kind of big in their era and in their time, actually used this little slight of sarcasm in his language. So on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like, hey, if your left hand tells you to, if your left hand caused you to sin, Chop her off. Everyone's like, <laughs> this is awkward because I'm not doing that, right? <laughs> but Jesus is using this language to show people and get them to understand that the values of what you're wanting to be in are going to be different. And it's going to radicalize the way you have viewed the world, the way you have viewed the cosmos, the way you view relationships, marriage, money, all of that is going to be tied up in this idea of metanoia, repentance, to change your mind. Why is Jesus doing this? Because Jesus' goal is to return everything back to the original plan, which is dominion. Oftentimes we have talked about that Adam and Eve did not screw up so bad that God can't do anything with it and he has to destroy everything. That's not the gospel. Rather that Jesus has come to put the plan back in that Adam and Eve screwed up, right? What is that plan? Genesis 128, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the flesh or over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you look at that word dominion in Hebrew, it is actually described as like a conquering, like a pilgrimage, like a colonization, not a bad colonization, but like a good colonization where you go to a land and you, you bring it into order. That was Adam and Eve's call, was dominion to bring the cosmos into its order, partnering with God, right? And then we know, there's a snake and some bad stuff happens and then we end up here. But for us, this is a radical shift predominantly in our eschatology. This is a radical shift in our understanding of our, honestly, even our gathering in the way we view like, like ecclesiology. 
This is not only that, but it is a return to the proper understanding of our Christology, our understanding of who Christ is, his purpose, his meaning, and his reason. Is that what we've been called into is more than accepting Christ and just waiting to die. What we've been called into is the partnership of dominion over the cosmos with God. What Adam and Eve started, God has called you and me to help finish. Amen? Awesome. I got one in the back. This leads us, awesome, there's two. This leads us to um, really predominantly the text I want us to center around over the next couple of weeks, which is 1 Peter 2, 7 through 10. And we're invited in this radical idea that Peter and the writer of Hebrews lets us in on, and it is this idea that not only are we called into this royal priesthood with Jesus, but we're called into this reality that we're actually called into share in this priesthood. In Romans, in Dr. Simmons' translation, he says it like this, that through our faith in Christ, we not only inherit all that he has, but we actually inherit all that he is. This is the idea we've often talked about of mutual indwelling, that I fully dwell in Christ and Christ fully dwells in me, right? Awesome. So let's go to 1 Peter 2. It says, as believers, you know his great worth. Indeed, his preciousness is imparted to you. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected and discarded has now become the cornerstone and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock to trip over. They keep stumbling over the message because they refuse to believe it. And this they were destined to do. But you are God's chosen treasure. Priests who are kings. A spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He called you out of darkness to experience his marvelous light. And now he claims you as his very own. He did this so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. For at one time you were not God's people, but now you are. At one time you knew nothing of God's mercy because you hadn't received it yet, but now you are drenched with it. This is the call. This is the call. That you have become drenched with mercy. You are now returned back to your original state, which is an image bearer. Hebrew language for Adam and Eve would use the idea of image bearer. At the end of the day, if Nora starts walking around here like a fool and screaming and crying and throwing her toys, we're predominantly going to look at Katie right? That's your kid. Get her in order. Although Nora's her own person with her own thoughts, her own processes, at the end of the day, Nora bears, bears an image of Katie. Nora is a representative of not only herself, but of Katie's parenting. And if that happens, we're going to have to talk about her kids pastoring. No, I'm just kidding. But this is a, this is a truth. And this is how early Israel would have viewed Adam and Eve as this idea that they were not only called into full relationship with Christ, but they were actually called to be the image bearer to the world around, the world around them of who Christ and who God was. Everywhere they went became the representation of God. Does that make sense? 
We see examples of this. In Acts, it says that, that Peter would wake up every morning and walk to the temple to pray. And every morning as he walked, people would be in his shadows. And as he walked through and people were in his shadows, they would be healed. Right? Remember that? Awesome. Why is, this, why is this so amazing? Because Peter lived in a different reality than ours. In the kingdom realm, there is no shadows because there is no darkness. So where Peter walked in complete light, shadows did not exist. And so people were entering into what they thought was Peter's shadow, but what they were actually entering into is full light. And this is the reality of a different realm than ours, the kingdom realm. This is the reality of Peter walking around as an image bearer of something other than himself. When these people walked into a room, you knew that they were a delegate, they represented something, right? When, when you lived in a small village back when people rode on horseback and somebody walked in and, or rode in on a horse and they had the king's seal and the king's horse and the king's men, you were like, this guy's, this guy's in charge of something. I don't know what, but it's something big. This is the idea of what it means to be an image bearer. It changes our eschatological vision and it actually helps understand our design as pilgrims, as colonizers, and as ministers of the kingdom. At the end of the day, through however you view the history of it, uh, this country has changed from when it was founded a long, long time ago, even before then. Its values, it's structured. As soon as the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, I'm a history buff. I'm an old history buff. As soon as they landed here, they realized there was one custom instead of ways, and their desire was a new custom instead of ways. At the end of the day, one had to win. Our call, not by force like they did, but our call with this is to realize that as king priests, we are called the servants to lead forth a new standard and way of living. This was, as we've talked about before, the radical thing that made Christianity so big when it first came. Jesus was the first ever rabbi in all of Israel to have female disciples. Radical. The church, the ecclesia in Rome, in Ephesus, in Philippi, they were the only place that women were no longer seen as a commodity or property, but as individual people with the same rights as men. Radically different. Radical concepts, radical ideas. Things that changed the way people thought. Right? There was a... Um, there's a writing from the first assistant of Nero Caesar and he's writing about how much he hates and how confused he is by Christians. And he said, the most frustrating things about Christians is that they share everything but their wives and we Romans share nothing but our wives. Right? It's this concept. There's so many early writings of, of Roman delegates and governors and leaders writing and going, we just can't seem to understand what this group has. What is, what is going on? They don't offer what we offer. They offer something different. So it's not making sense why they're growing. Right? Because the church was growing by the thousands all across the Mediterranean. It was a radical new way of living. 
It was a literal pilgrimage. It was a literal new colony. In, in Philippians, Paul would say that we are a colony of heaven here on earth, a colony of the kingdom. And this is something that is radically different than was ever the plan but that we see consistently throughout scripture over and over and over and over and over again in small pieces, but never actually brought together. So in Genesis first, we see this through Adam and Eve. It's this somewhat idea of king priest. Then we move into King Melchizedek, right? This next kind of concept of what is this guy? Where does he come from? What's going on? Then we see this begin to split in Israel, right? We see the Levitical order come into play. Priest, individual priest. Then Israel, against God's judgment, asks for a king. Now we see these two roles completely split in half. We see the Levitical order of priests, and we see a king to reign over Israel. And for Israel, this is the blueprint of what is to come. But there's one guy who puts a whole cog in the machine, and we talked about him earlier. His name is David. David is our first true example in understanding. David had a, such a peer somehow into the future because he shared a heart after God's own heart that he actually had somehow an understanding of what was to come, right? David, even though he's not a king yet, eats the showbread, which is reserved only for the priest. David becomes king, and when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into the city, wears the robes of the high priest, right? David has this concept of understanding that there is actually no difference between our role as royalty, as king, and our role as priest. My role is combined dominion and presence, David is the first person we ever see bring these two ideas together of dominion and presence. It's brought into this idea, which is even greater of what God's entire plan was. Because God's greatest plan, um, and I love the way N.T. Wright says it like this. N.T. Wright says that the message of the Bible is not us dying to go to heaven. It's greater. It's the message that God again has chosen to dwell amongst his people. That God has chosen once again to remain in his completeness with us. And not only that, but it's actually in us because up until then, we've only seen examples of what it means to be fully in presence, right? Adam and Eve get to go into presence but it's not their full state, right? Adam and Eve have the first example of what the tabernacle is, right? An outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies. The garden or Eden itself would have been seen as the outer court. The garden itself would have been seen as the inner court. And the tree of life is seen as this idea of the holies of holies. The problem for Adam and Eve is as they're going out and taking dominion, they have to retreat back in, into the garden, into the tree of life to return back to presence. This is why God walks with them in the cool of the day after they finished their day with their vocation. So at this place that we see the presence of God is in a permanent location. 
we then move on to understand that the presence of God soon becomes mobile. And we find our first example of the tabernacle, that wherever Israel went, so did the presence of God. It's a beautiful idea and concept and prophetic insight of what is to come. That oddly, wherever this nation goes, God is with them. The problem remains that only Aaron and his sons and their order can actually get into the presence of God. They're the only ones that get to minister to the heart of God. And this leaves us with a problem that God wants to solve. I love the way that David could peer into this in Psalm 57 or 51, 16 through 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. David already has this idea past the law of Moses into what is to become the union that we share with Christ. He says, he says once again in understanding his own role as a priest, when he says in Psalm 27, here's the one thing I crave from Yahweh, the one thing I seek above all else. I want to live with him every moment in his house, beholding the marvelous beauty of Yahweh, filled with awe, delighting in his glory and his grace. I want to contemplate in his temple. This is not the concept of the first temple nation of Israel. To live in a constant state of giving glory and living in the presence of God, that's reserved for the Levites. But David sees past this. David sees past his own understanding of his kingship and realizes that he's called to something greater. And what happens is Jesus comes on the scene and shows us the full reality of what is to come. We go from the presence of God being stationary in the garden. We move from it being mobile in the tabernacle and we move to its completeness as being us. We move into the completeness as the kingdom of God, not being a place, not being a mobile tent, but being his people that we are a royal priesthood, as Peter would say, set apart as a holy nation, that wherever I go, whatever I touch is into the kingdom realm. We see radical concepts of this as they would take Paul's sweat rag around city to city and as people would touch it, they were healed. That's because Paul and his sweat rag belonged to one kingdom that wasn't in the kingdom he was currently living in. It belonged somewhere else. This is, according to scripture, our place, our purpose, right? Our understanding of our DNA, our understanding of our own anthropology is dominion and presence, is king and priest. You are called to bring order to the cosmos and minister to the heart of God. This is the dual role in which you have been invited into, dominion and presence. You've been called to bring order into things that have disorder. We can get into any current social or political situation and see consistent perversion. 
And the call of order is not another great worship song. The call of order is a people group who actually live out of the purity and wholeness of what it means to be human. We talk a lot about imputed righteousness, right? Romans 5 says that because you have peace with God, God has transferred his righteousness to you. And because of that, you now can approach the throne room boldly. Imputed righteousness, righteousness in Greek is dikaino usane, which means to be in the state one ought to be in. God's transfer of his righteousness to you has nothing to do with equality and has everything to do with your own identity. And when you become fully you, it means you now become a representative of what you've been designed to do, which is to be an image bearer of who Christ is everywhere you go. This is our high order. Because at the end of the day, I think me, all of us can still oftentimes deal with this idea, this concept that we wake up in the morning and we go, honestly, who am I? What was I designed to do? We still live with that. We still wrestle with this idea of, what am I designed to do? What is my calling? When I was a kid growing up, everything was your calling. You had to learn your calling. Get married and have a calling. That was our whole lives as a kid, right? Don't have premarital sex, get married and find out your calling. Are you a missionary? Are you a pastor, a youth pastor? Which one is it? There's only three. You had to fit into one of those. I'm not a missionary, I'll tell you that. And everything in life, even as we see outside of our own realm in the church world, is still about understanding who I am. What is my identity? What is my sexuality? What is money? What is fear? What is anxiety? How do I manage my emotions, my own abilities, my my fears? And what we keep waiting for oftentimes is this great service or this great moment where it just gets unlocked, but the cosmos is actually looking for people who actually believe who God says they are. And everywhere they go in their own circle of influence, be that person. That is our kingly role. And then our priestly role is the return together in family, in community to once again minister to his heart. This was the order of of the Levites. This was their call as priests, was to minister to the heart of God. This is why we gather, is to minister to the heart of God. I know oftentimes you think it's about you, but it's not. It's shockingly about God. And when we get this radical understanding of these two things, we begin to understand that our purpose is dominion and our purpose is presence. I realize that my purpose is to be a good husband to the people around me. I, on Wednesday nights, um, am fathering and going through life with a group of 13-year-old boys. Pray for me. Some of them are over here right now. Um, About to put them all in the mental institution. So pray for me. But my goal for them and my goal 
as they come into my home is to see someone who has dominion in his areas of influences. I'm a good husband. Hopefully soon I'll be a good father. I take care of my finances. I take care of my things. I honor people with my mouth. I honor people with my actions. And when I bring the cosmos into dominion through those actions, it actually produces other kings and priests. And when we gather, we begin to minister to the heart of the Lord. So we're bringing dominion to the things around us while also releasing what is in us to him. It's a high call. It is a high call, but it is the call according to Hebrews of the believer. I'm in a place where I could stop or we could just kind of keep going and just go as long as we want. We'll just keep going a little bit. According to, like I said, the writer of Hebrews, this shockingly is the full sign of spiritual maturity. This is what we move into when we move past the basics of what scripture is telling us. There is greater things to be discovered, greater things to be understood. I'm gonna read, um, hmm. we're either gonna be here for 10 minutes or another two hours. So let me figure that out. An extra two hours, you heard it here first. Someone said, let's go for two more hours. Glory to God. Let's do this. Let's do this. <clears throat> I feel Yahweh is, is done with that, and I feel like he wants to move on. Let's go ahead and stand. Uh, is Aaron still here? Huh? Oh, okay, Braden, come on up to the keyboard then. I thought you said he was behind me. <laughs> I, I want everybody to understand as we move forward, um, I believe we're being called into a very special moment. There are people who understand their role in ministering to him very well. And I believe we're getting there. I think you've seen in our worship recently this awakening to what it means to minister to his heart and let it be led by what he desires. Right, oftentimes when I begin to pray into Sunday nights, I just consistently try to offer up his lordship over our night, that he remain lord over what is happening. Many of us are, are very comfortable with the Savior. Few of us are very comfortable with the Lord. And we're moving into this idea of what it means to minister to him, but, but very few people truly grasp their calling to display him everywhere they are. And oftentimes that has become um, not perverted, but just there's been so much fear placed in us because the idea of representing Jesus everywhere we are often has been seen by doing something with our mouths, right? How many people have walked up to the door of Walmart and, and someone has said, can I tell you about Jesus? And in my own brain, I'm thinking, please, God, no. I'd rather do anything than let you tell me about Jesus right now. There's this awkward encounter where he's kind of tell you what's going on. People are passing by you. He's got a track and you're trying to read it while listening to him. He's wanting you to make a decision right there. And it's like, this is a lot of pressure. It's like high pressure sales. And for us often, the idea of representation has been brought or been boiled down to this thing is let me tell you about Jesus. 
Let me tell you about this man. And yet all of scripture has been found not by the believer seeking out the unbeliever, but the unbeliever seeing the nature, the happiness, the joy, the wholeness, and the power of the believer. No one will ever need to tell someone about Jesus with their mouths when they can simply come up and heal them from cancer through the power of the Holy Spirit. No one will ever honestly need to pass out any type of track or have some type of awkward conversation when people walk into your house and all their anxiety and depression come off of them because of the peace that you now carry. The wholeness that the earth needs is not found in the building. It's actually found in your understanding of your role and who you've been designed to be. Your ability to understand that righteousness means you now are fully you. That person is designed for dominion. That person is designed for presence. That person, when they understand their wholeness, will become a walking billboard of what it means to be whole. So I just want you to just close your eyes. I don't wanna overload you and I don't wanna put too much where we stop or we kinda can't remember where we started. And so I wanna go through this whole concept slow and we're gonna break down the idea of what it means to be a king and what it means to be a priest and slowly walk through these concepts and what Hebrews says together. But I just wanna stop here because I feel there is this, there's oftentimes this, this thing that gets built up inside of us that when we hear words in a message that we've already heard or we've heard phrases that we've already had put together, we immediately begin to check out and go, I already got that part. Right? Right now we're constantly living in a state of the revelation junkie where he goes, I already know I'm saved. Well, you don't look like Jesus, so you don't actually know you're saved. So quit worrying about the book of Enoch for five minutes. And the reality is, is we can kind of shut ourselves off because we go, oh, righteousness again. Ah, king and priest, right? I get it, yeah. And the reality is, is this is not a piece of what we're trying to become and do. This is the piece. This is the thing. This is why you were designed. This is your call to wholeness. I said it last week, but the earth is in anticipation, in groaning, in the midst of birth pains, not for the return of Christ, but for the revealing of the sons and daughters of Yahweh. The cosmos is on its tiptoes waiting for you to become you. Waiting for you to accept the invitation into what Adam and Eve were called to do, which is to bring something more. So I'm gonna call our ministry team up tonight. And I... Um, I, I, I want to say this. I feel like we are about to, um, in this next season, and I say season, and I really believe like over the next year or so, we're about to move into a radical um, 
a radical awakening to what it means to be prayed over and what it means to be prayed with. And I think we're about to see some real shifts in what the end of our services look like. Um, But for tonight, I just want you to just close your eyes. And I want you to open your hands and I I just wanna just pray over you and invite you into this understanding. So Father, tonight, I just ask that you awaken hearts and minds to the full awareness of what we are moving into as a family, that we are called as image bearers, the full reality of our purpose and our identity, the full reality of our meaning, the full reality of the cosmic journey that we've been called to. Let us come into the full awareness of what this is. Let us leave. Let us leave the fear of this being something more than simply being ourselves. Let us leave the fear of legalistically this looking like work or action. Let us move into the rest the faith rest realm of understanding this simply requires being who you were designed to be. Father, let us open our hearts to the reality of wholeness, that there is more wholeness available, that a life of sinlessness is available, that a life of complete health is available, that a life of power is available, that a life of a sound mind is available. Let us reign and rule. Let us understand our design. We worship you in the name of Jesus. We just pray, amen. I'm gonna open up our altars for those of you that are currently in need for prayer. I just feel tonight, um, Braden said this. Um, we had the doors opened in the middle of worship. Braden went back and told them to open the doors because he felt this invitation to tell religion that it could go ahead and leave the room. Yeah, which was awesome. And so what I feel tonight is if some of you are still currently caught in this concept or struggle of this switch of understanding that you're not waiting to die, but you're actually called into wholeness, We have incredible people up here, incredible elders up here. And I just invite you to come receive prayer, but we'll see everybody next week. Love you.